We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? I like men like that. Men who give me pleasure. I've never had feelings like this. I have to get them into some sort of order. If you have to talk, remember to ask lots of work questions if you want more than a yes or no answer. You will just have an exam. You just take them to the lavatory and you have sex with them. be weird not having anybody come on you. Hey, we're back. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Actually, I had terrible hay fever today, but since I've been talking to you, it's gone. Ooh, I think nice. you're a natural antihistamine. <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> you're homeopathic. Fantastic. Uh, you've got that nice vocal fry. Yeah, I do still a little bit. I'm still talking through my throat instead of through my nose. It's lovely. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, how are you with the heat today? It's very hot. Very uh, hot. But I'm I'm really lucky. I have this r- like room in the house that never gets any direct sunlight. So mm-hmm. like plants can't live in it, but I thrive because it doesn't. It just stays cool. So I'm oh, quite lucky. It, it's starting to get a little. It's like it's like it's not cold. Mm. But it doesn't get, you know, so you know how some rooms in your house just like get flooded with sunlight and they get really hot. Oh, yeah. It's kind of nice dark corner like a lizard. And how about you? I'm I'm sad that you had to miss the sun this weekend because you're teaching. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I've just come out of um, a six day like consecutive series of teaching and uh, it was pretty intense. Unfortunately, I missed the beautiful, gorgeous day yesterday and I was like really kicking myself for not being out I wanted to go to the Brockwell Lido actually oh that would be so nice I was thinking about Lido's promised myself that the next day like that I will be out all day oh you're getting it soon I think next Sunday it's something it's something insane like 34 degrees oh yes okay perfect yeah it's gonna we're not the sun isn't going away like I think it's gonna be a heat wave for a couple of weeks so you've got so much time yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so happy. I know. It's really nice. I'm so happy because last year was so depressing. It just never got sunny. And it just it stayed horrible the entire summer. And it was very depressing. And I get I get summertime sadness anyway, as I was telling mm. you. So it's it's hard to have summertime sadness in this heat. So yeah, much better. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I think maybe I've timed it well, like being in London in this period. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you know, I just got back from Sweden Yes, and, um, it was fantastic visiting one of our former guests on the pod, Vanessa Sinclair, shout out to her. Hi Vanessa. Hi Vanessa and her wonderful husband, Carl. They were such great hosts to me and made me feel so welcome and looked after. And it was my first time ever in Sweden and I loved it. It was so much fun. Were any old people sacrificed? <laughs> no, I was really let down about that actually. I I was expecting like a sacrificial, you know, ritual, but 
No, it was really great. Like I I discovered that I really like Swedish food. I have a Swedish palate apparently. Oh, yeah. I like Scandinavian food in general. Yes. Like, like pickled things. Like I like yes. having savory breakfasts, like sort of like cold savory breakfasts. I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Very cold. I haven't been to Sweden, but I've been to Norway and I really enjoyed the food there. Mm, amazing. I need to go to Norway as well. It's I feel like gorgeous. I'd get along there. Yeah. Yeah, I really like a cold climate, actually, even though I am, I'm enjoying the sun. Yeah. Like a cold, like a, I don't know, something about uh, over there, like it, when it's freezing, you're kind of prepared mm-hmm. for it and it just doesn't seem as harsh as when it's cold in London. I've heard people mm-hmm. say that, actually. People come from like really cold <laughs> places and they're just like, London's something like especially cruel about London cold, even though it's not the coldest place on earth. It's because it's damp. Yeah. It's like, you know, in other countries where it's very cold, it, t- it tends to be dry cold. Mm-hmm. So if you just put on the appropriate layers, you're, you're good. You're toasty. But the damp I find in England is very, um, like, it just goes to my bones, you know? Yeah. I also just realized I did that thing where I conflate England with London. Um, because <laughs> I have rarely left. So um, <laughs> actually, I was in Froome this weekend and um, <laughs> and like, I don't really, yeah, like I grew up in London. I don't really go to the countryside very often. So like Alex was like explaining to me how trains work and like <laughs> all of this stuff. And then we were sleeping in this sort of glamping campsites. Um, and Alex woke me up in the middle of the night and was like, there's a nightingale. Can you hear it? And I was like, oh, God. Like, and then the next day, I, uh, my friend Jordan was like, how did you sleep? And I was, I was like, well, fine. Alex like woke me up in the middle of the night to listen to a nightingale. And she was like, that is, do you know how rare that is? Like everyone dreams of hearing a nightingale like once Aww. in their lives. It's a once in a lifetime moment. Like that you're so lucky. And I was just like, you could probably just like, hear it on youtube (laughs) (laughs) yeah just download this podcast episode of like nightingale sound exactly like (laughs) to help you fall asleep or whatever (laughs) so now yeah so now that's like that's uh, i I basically failed in romance this weekend because (laughs) listen to the nightingale a beautiful love song (laughs) i was like leave me alone i'm trying to sleep (laughs) They were the birds were already waking me up like they're so shrill and loud and I was like yeah already getting half awake anyway but no apparently <laughs> it's a great honor to hear the song of a nightingale so sorry nightingales and nature lovers for doing that <laughs> <laughs> amazing do you have any other trips planned this summer I do actually I have like a full I think just because I haven't been on proper holidays for yeah. so long and also because I'm prone to the summertime sadness. And mm-hmm. I also, and I try and combat it by working all summer. And it actually, and then by August, I get super lonely. And I feel like I don't have any friends because I planned work for the whole yes. summer. So I've like gone really all out for the holidays this year. I'm going to Corfu with Alex for a week. <gasps> Amazing. And then towards the end of the, the end of August, I'm going to Ibiza for a few, for a few days with some girls that I know. So I'm having a proper hot girl summer. Hot girl summer, feral girl summer too. What about you? Um, Well, I mean, I feel like I've maxed out my trips this year because I... You have gone on a lot of trips this year. Yeah, I went to New York and then Sweden. I would really like to go to Sardinia. 
Do it. Um, Hot girl summer. As you know, Paul is going to Spain for 37 days to do that pilgrimage thing, you know, the Catholic walk. Oh, amazing. Does it take 37 days? Yeah. I had no idea it took that long. Yeah. So he's going to be away for a while. So I need to find something to amuse myself. Maybe I should just go on a, you know, solo holiday to Sardinia. Oh my God, that would be so glamorous. I don't know. It seems like very talented Mr. Ripley of you. Like, Mm. I love, I love like the idea. It just sounds like the beginning of a film. So you should definitely do it and see what happens to you. I'm very tempted, honestly. Like, I feel like it could be something thought-provoking at the very least. Mm, So, yeah. If we have any listeners who have, like, holiday homes and you want, like, an interesting guest, invite Mary. I don't know why more people don't do that. That's what they used to do in the old days all the time. They used to just, like, invite, you know, like, writers and artists and detectives to their house to entertain them. Like, people should do that more. That should be more of a thing. And guys, we should be at the top of your list. Like, you know, like we would a be... podcast on all the time. <laughs> I mean, just imagine the dinner conversation. Yeah. And if, if there are any like billionaires in the chat right now, um, if anyone out there wants to uh, finance my holidays <laughs> to Sardinia. Sorry, if there are any billionaires in the chat, can you like donate a bit more money to us? <laughs> we, we need to pay for our website in a month. <laughs> Yeah, don't donate money, please, and you know, finance our film company. One hundred percent. Actually, speaking of donations, um, yes. this week we have to thank Natalie Ridgen for your donation. Very generous. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Natalie. Yay! <laughs> I'm so glad I got sweet. to do that up front. I'm going to try and do it at the beginning of the podcast from now on. Um, I've started making a little note in it of, of it above the synopsis. Yeah. Um, so it's not left till the end because we are truly very grateful. So grateful. It's very sweet. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and also, as always, if you leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes, it helps to get us out there, you know, algorithmically speaking, and we get more listeners. So it's, it's fantastic. Just, it's just good for our self-esteem as well. Like, yeah. needs a compliment. even the people that you think get compliments all the time because they're so perfect and beautiful. Like, <laughs> they don't. So, and I'm still upset by that guy that kept criticizing how much we say like. I know. So need, That's so you, stung. Need, you need like 10 compliments to undo the sting of an insult. Why is that? I know. It's always the way. It's always the way. So we appreciate all of your love and your DMs and truly grateful for that. It's a blessing. Mm -hmm. And today our topic is Thanatos. Yeah, on this beautiful sunny day, we're talking about the death drive. (laughs) That is what Thanatos is, right? Yes, it is. I have to say it's very on brand for us. Yeah, 100%. This is like goths in the sunshine kind of. Totally. Yeah. This is this is going to be our summer, basically. Yeah. Like fetish and or sexualities oh of all kinds throughout the summer. We've timed so it very exciting. well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> oh, I wonder if people are going to be listening to us on beaches and things like that. You should, you guys should send us your snaps of where you're listening to us. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. see where, where we are in the world. Send us like the, the hot dog legs meme yes, of where yeah. you are in the world. Send us your hot dog legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the films today, I have to say, are two of my favorites in this series. Same. Um, I really enjoyed this week's watching. 
like yeah really, really nice. I haven't seen damage for quite some time um and I'd never seen shame before this was your first viewing of shame my first viewing of shame and I loved it and yeah. I have no idea what kept me away I thought it was going to be really bleak and maybe yeah. it is really bleak to some people, but for me, I, I I think it's just one of those things, if you leave it too long, you just imagine much worse. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was really touching. And the same as what you said, I just wanted to know more about yeah. these two people. Like, I thought it was great. And then Damage, oh, it's such a masterpiece. It's so oh, good. So good. I'm, I mean, her wardrobe as well. Oh, my God. Like, at the, the when um, he goes to see her in Paris and she comes out of the hotel <gasps> room in that belted coat, that belted brown yeah. coat, I was, I basically, like, that is my look. Like, that is all yes. I ever want to wear. It's, it's so beautiful. And I don't know why any, like, any style is ever in fashion, apart from Julia Binoche. I Damage. know. It's amazing. Like everything from her an extraordinarily gorgeous clothes to her haircut, her mm. makeup. Like she just looks like she smells good, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. She looks so amazing and just like that kind of placid face, that serene, yes. serene expression. Oh, she's so good. She's so, so good. good. Perfect. It's sort of like pretty close in terms of uh, how I would rank the styles when I compare. Juliette Binoche in Damage and Kim Basinger in Nine and a Half Weeks. I have to yeah. say her wardrobe in that is kind of amazing too. Same. Like she wears like, it's also the coats. The coat yes. game in yes. erotic thrillers uh, is just fantastic. I guess like, Always. I guess maybe that would make sense actually, you know, because like eroticism yeah. is all in the clothes really because it's like much more erotic to have clothes on than to not have clothes on. So I think maybe that's why clothes. Oh, maybe there's something in that—a little exploration of. I think you need to ex- erotic. Thrillers. Yeah, I think this is one um, made for you, actually. Like yeah. coats, especially because it's—I don't know. I have, people associate coats with flashers too. Yeah, exactly. And you get the impression that she doesn't have anything on under that coat when she comes out of the hotel. Exactly. So, yeah, definitely definitely oh my god yeah the coats I love coats coats are my favorite thing next time maybe like I love underwear and coats if I could only have to wear two things it would just be underwear and coats well that's the perfect combination exactly that's actually (laughs) all you need (laughs) it's literally all you need (laughs) oh actually in Froome this weekend I bought I'm gonna wear it when I see you at the weekend um I bought you will understand when you see it I bought like a hammer horror lesbian vampire dress um, you've been doing vampires with evolution of horror haven't you yes so you know like the, the vampire lovers that sort of like pride and prejudice yes like off the shoulder white muslin dress I bet I bought one of those and I'm gonna wear it all summer oh wow it's amazing it's amazing. that sounds so pretty it's so pretty I've been wanting one for so long and I tried it on and like I went and tried it on in the shop and when I opened the curtain like everyone in the shop was like oh my god you look so lovely and I don't know if they're all like, paid actors for like for the shopkeeper but it just it really worked because I just bought it straight away so oh yeah. I bet you looked very beautiful oh, I'm so I can't wait to see it. I don't even know if I look good in it but it just is like it's like a dress up dress you know yes like it just makes me feel like I've stepped into a different century so yeah oh my god well I feel like this dress should be a good excuse for Mike to throw a vampire themed party and you should come wearing it actually that is like I partly was like there are people (laughs) in the film and podcast community that I want to see me wearing this dress 
and like see if they understand the reference I feel like those are the only people that will <laughs> so if I just like go out with like my friends and like it's Hamahara lesbian vampire dress they'll be like yes yes Sarah love the thing you say like, <laughs> and I'll have to get out my phone and google it they won't understand it's, it's always it's you know it's so hard not being understood <laughs> like I'm not having my fashion references understood I feel you <laughs> And then in the autumn, then we we can go shopping for coats for nine and a half weeks and damage. Yes, coats. please. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want an oversized double-breasted coat. Yeah, and I want to wear it with like stone-washed pale blue jeans. Oh, so good. And maybe like a dupe for those ridiculously like massive Balenciaga sneakers. Oh, nice! That is a nice look. Right. And like they should be findable. Like I see Rihanna in that look all the time. So yeah. I don't know where she gets hers, but I feel like that the oversized coat, the jeans, the trainers. Yeah. I mean the trainers has. I did end up buying at like it was like a flash sale <laughs> flash online sale at JD Sports. I ended up buying um these I can't say they're dupes for the Balenciagas, but they are similar shape and color. But they're Fila sneakers and they're very nice. Love Fila. Love yeah, Fila. I do too. I have a spot, soft spot for brand. them. I feel but like, yeah, I, I, I agree. Underloved. Anyway, Underloved. This is, this is not a fashion podcast. We have to <laughs> back on track. Sorry, people. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But I bet they liked hearing about the underwear and code combo. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they did. Those total perverts. Exactly. well um i do have a little bit of theory to kind of like set us up i'd love to hear Um, the theory i don't know very much at all about thanatos well um i mean psychoanalysis you know the death drive is understood as the tendency towards destruction it's usually expressed via behaviors such as aggression and compulsively repeating negative life patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, Freud actually never used the term Thanatos. Um, he always, you know, he was known for, for referring to Eros and then also the death drive. That was a part of his vocabulary that he used all the time. But his successors or followers later on ended up coining the term Thanatos as a kind of like I guess, counterpart to the life force. And what I find really interesting, actually, is that, and this is a criticism that Freud may do, is that like our society is really constructed around valuing life at all times. You know, like we're meant to be perceived as living our best life, right? So Mm -hmm. we're like, we have to always prove constantly that, we're, we're being productive, we're being healthy, we're so enthusiastic, we're, you know, we're happy at all times, etc. Like to suggest that we are at any point or in any way like preoccupied with the notion of death or ever admitting that we've engaged in self-sabotage, like this really runs the risk of being perceived negatively. Mm-hmm. Um at least by normies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Who we don't associate with. So Yeah, say? like don't know them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know her. Heard heard of them, but whatevs, yeah. you know. Um <laughs> But um I suppose like what's interesting to me is 
I guess, like acknowledging that the death drive exists. We can't pretend it doesn't. And maybe there's even a cultural merit in coming to terms with that Mm -hmm. because it sort of helps us to identify maybe like comprehend and hopefully integrate harmful impulses in a functional way, maybe in a sublimated way. And that for me is the real key to psychoanalysis. It's not just to be like a doomer and say that we're all like fucked up and we're self-destructive and like wallow in that. The whole point is that you're just being honest and you're not like living in denial, at least like to the best of your ability. And hopefully you can just like be straight up with those impulses and like try and find out if there's some creative way that you can make room for that so that it actually benefits you, you know? Mm. And all of this stuff grew out of actually an essay that Sigmund Freud wrote in 1920, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And um, it sort of marks a major turning point in Freud's theoretical approach because before Freud attributed like most human behavior to just the existence of the sexual instinct, eros, which we touched on last week. Mm. And previously his hypothesis was that our soul drive that exists in us is the one towards experiencing pleasure and shielding oneself from pain. Mm. Um, So he called it like the pleasure principle, right? He believed that we were just motivated by seeking pleasure, like obtaining pleasure. But here in this text, he sort of goes beyond that simple pleasure principle, which is, of course, the title of the text. Um, And he starts to develop this like drive theory. So here he doesn't like dispute the existence of pleasure, but discounts it as a dominant drive. Mm -hmm. Whereas before he believed that the urge to obtain pleasure was curtailed by an interfering ego or like the conscious personality. Now he's theorizing that it's rather our masochistic need to annihilate what we love that prevents us from being happy. Whoa, that's interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Like he starts naming all these things in the paper, like fear of commitment, the denial of our reality, of our situation, recreating traumatic events all the time. There should be no reason why we would do all of these things. It's so irrational. It's keeping us separated from our joy and happiness, and yet we continue to do it. And it's that doesn't follow the logic of the pleasure principle, right? Like if we're really just motivated by getting pleasure, why would we do all this like fucked up shit? Oh, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. And this is when he starts to really develop like this image of this entwined dual system, always Eros and the death drive, butting heads and like locked into this weird dance, like this eternal dance, you know, almost like a double helix, mm. you know, that's how I imagine it. There's a push and pull between them. And we always try and rise up from the you know, destructive like impulses to annihilate ourselves by continuing to live and continuing to produce and trying to survive and be healthy. But that's the Freud's point is that that's always in response to this overwhelming urge to annihilate our, ourselves. Oh, this is so interesting. And then like some people kind of cope with that by like pushing down 
the like aggression so it like kind of comes out in these very like strange self-sabotaging ways like yeah. I was it, this is reminding me and it also I guess like it makes me think of the character of Stephen in Damage but this is reminding me of um did you ever read um Kristen Rupenian's book I think that's how you say her name um, she wrote that that story, Cat Person, that was in the New Yorker. Oh yeah. Um, and then there's a book that she wrote of short stories called um, "You Know You Want This," and I really enjoyed it. Like there's really some really good stories, but there's one called Biter. Okay. Um, about a woman who loves to bite people, and <laughs> she, you know, and it like obviously it makes her very unpopular as a child, so she stops doing it. And then, like, that's basically about her working at this job and having this, like, irresistible urge to bite this guy that she doesn't like. And <laughs> she kind of goes home and makes, like, a list of pros and cons about what would happen if she bit this guy in her office. And there's a bit where it says, like, she realized then that her life had been, had become about the avoidance of pain rather than the pursuit of pleasure. <laughs> oh my god and I was like and when I read it I was like oh my god me too <laughs> like and, that's, and it's also like Stephen and I think that's somehow sometimes how we react to our like we think that we've got our like Thanatos urges under control but rather we've kind of like deadened like the highs and the lows yes in order to in order to kind of like keep that aggression inside so it's actually kind of interesting because I'm like trying excavating some of my aggression in therapy currently. So I'm finding this like this whole topic mm. really interesting for that reason. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. I I love the sound of this writer. I'll bring you the book on um at the weekend. It's great. Oh, it's cool. really I really enjoyed this book. It was there are like some stories of uh, like I enjoy some stories more than others. Yes, but that Vita one I particularly liked. I yeah. love that. But yeah. you're so right about the the acting out aspect and the aggressive component feeling almost like supercharged yeah as a result it seems so paradoxical like why would we do that to ourselves you know like why would we do ourselves dirty like that you know it feels good or it like feels what we think of as good or like yes. I don't know, familiar or like I'm not really totally sure what the feeling is but like all of those there's like you know all of those self-destructive things they like they are like a relief yes some kind so they must be very deep rooted in us we must like I guess because they're safer than success mm. um and mm. maybe like I think pleasure can be like a really frightening thing actually as like as you grow up um and as you grow up yeah. like you know ple like pleasure seems to come with like certain risks or like you'll suddenly experience like being really happy and then being told off and being made to feel stupid or something like that and then gradually yeah. you learn that like gradually you learn that it's not so safe to be happy. So I think there's like a safety in self-sabotage. Absolutely right. Firmly agree with that. And, you know, it really is an irresistible urge. And there seems to be something there connected with delaying life itself. Mm. There's something in this text where Freud does talk about like, it's all, he gets into some speculative biology as we know, like he was a neurologist, so he was always interested in like the biological underpinnings of a lot of stuff. And he does sort of go into this theory that maybe in every cell in our body, there's a program to live, but there's also, he, I think he uses a word like comfort that like, that, that, like you described, you mm -hmm. know, something reassuring or familiar about the, the pre-existence 
phase, like the pre-life phase. Mm. Uh, and he says that there's there's something rather appealing in every cell about wanting to return to that inorganic state. That's such an interesting way to look at it. Like, mm. actually, it feels much more accurate not to call it a death drive, but to call it like a fetal drive. Wow, like, yeah. A womb drive. A womb drive. Because, you know, you're not wishing that your life could be over. You're mm-hmm. like wishing that it hadn't begun yet. When you are stuck or like yes. you do something that makes you stuck in life. Like, yeah. it's not because you want to die. It's because you, no. you not have started yet. Like, oh, because you're afraid of starting, Mm. of like really starting. So much kind of less taboo in a way. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's less dramatic than like scenes of, you know, wanting to like do some crazy shit and like die, you know? Exactly. So if we all called it the womb drive, like maybe it would become a bit less cool and people would like work themselves (laughs) out of it a bit faster. You wouldn't get like rock stars being like, yeah, man, I just got a womb drive. Like (laughs) drinking whiskey on their motorcycles. Trashing this hotel room just isn't that, you know, sexy to me anymore. I just I feel a little immature. Like, <laughs> <laughs> let's write a book. Let's call cool. let's I, like let's rebrand the death drive. And like let's write like a little self-help book, make millions. Yes, I want that fuck you money through the womb drive. Totally. Totally. The womb drive. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Remember when we did the Proust questionnaire and you said that you loved the pre- phase of working on a project yes the idea when, stage the idea stage yeah and that is the that is the womb stage right that's the inception 100 and that's where i'm trapped i am trapped in the womb in the yeah. I'm not trapped in the womb i'm trapped in the <laughs> idea stage of life like it takes me a lot to get past the idea so mm. yeah so I'm you're really onto you something you're here productive past the idea you like you just get your ideas out there so yeah. Well, you do too. You do yeah, too. Eventually, but it's very, it's like, have to really, it's like <laughs> a very traumatic birth every single time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I really love what you said here. And I really think it applies in both of these films. Like it's, it's really illuminated a lot for me. Totally. Which one do you want to talk about first? Maybe, I don't know. What's your instinct? I feel like maybe shame first. I have that. I have it written there, but now I'm starting to think: yeah. Does shame have a slightly hopeful ending? Yeah. No, you're right. I think we need to stick with um, damage first. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about damage. I love this film. I love the Me book too. as well. Have you read the book? Yes, I have. Josephine Hart. Josephine Hart. Isn't she like Baroness Saatchi or something? Oh Josephine yeah. Hart. She's like an aristocrat, which actually makes sense because it's very much in an aristocratic world of like racism and like all of this stuff. So yes. um I love the family dynamics in this film. Like, I know. So brilliant and so incredibly tragic and sad. Like I know. And just all so explicit and talk so explicitly talked about. Anyway. Um, okay, I'm gonna synopsize very quickly. Okay. So damage, 1992, Louis Mal. Mm-hmm. Um, politician Stephen Fleming is blessed with a beautiful family and a flourishing career. When he meets his son's girlfriend, Anna, the two experience an immediate attraction, beginning an affair that will have devastating consequences. Mm. <laughs> I remember when I watched this recently, I couldn't help but think that it also worked quite well as like a pre-Brexit movie. Because <laughs> he... He say, makes a speech about how we have to, we're not just one yes. country, like we have to, 
like keep up with the rest of of Europe, you know, because That's you're it. part of this bigger thing. So very interesting. Like and all very of this interesting. Stuff, like, he's just like, I need those ozone figures. And it's like, how how long has it been since we talked about the ozone layer? Like, you know, he's <laughs> like, I need the ozone figures. And then he's like, they're gonna offer me health. And it's just like, but you know about the ozone. So why like are you suddenly the, like I, I've always found that completely bizarre. I know that you're suddenly the minister for health and like last week you were the minister for culture. Yeah. Like, what? It doesn't make any sense. Like, you're unqualified for both. Yeah, unqualified like, for everything. Like, actually, well, I guess he is isn't unqualified for health because he is a doctor. Well, he is actually a doctor. Yeah, yeah he so. he he actually does have something going for him. Exactly. So um, he would. He's actually someone that should be in government. Like, even oh though, god, I know. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the current situation. <laughs> it's so fucked up. So back to damage. So yeah. So he's like got this pretty almost like picture perfect life mm-hmm. he's got he's his married fancy to job richardson who is oh the most beautiful God. woman in the world cold hitchcockian beauty that is my mm. favorite kind of beauty like she's so icy and like she looks like she's like almost like medieval or something yes. like there's something so sort of historical oh i just have always thought she was the most beautiful person i've ever seen I She's think very cool. I think when I was younger, there was this like Merlin series on TV, not like the recent one, but there was one in the nineties, and I mm. think that she might have been in that playing some kind of like cold evil queen or something <gasps> like that. Oh yeah. So yeah, I've just always thought. Oh yes, I've just found pictures of it. It's like a Merlin film with Sam Neill and Helena Bonham Carter. Oh my god, this was so good. Did anyone else watch this? Miranda Richardson is dressed like Madonna in the Frozen video. Like she's got like a long black wig and like all of this dark makeup. Oh my God, I'm going to post some pictures later. She's amazing. <laughs> she's so good. And she, she plays is the part amazing. so well. Like this, she, like, she's so kind of horrible to Anna. I, like, I think it's really yeah. funny. Yeah. I know. I mean, it, which actually like paints the perfect picture for the death drive because it's like, this guy's got everything in life. Like, mm. what the hell is he doing? Why would he ever look anywhere else but at his own family and his own situation? Like, she's really wonderful and he's worked hard, you know? I don't know. There's some friction there with his son, isn't there? Yeah, it's a really, like, interesting family dynamic because you've got mm. the wife who is in some kind of relationship with her father Yes. Like is very and in the book it's more explicit. In the book it is yeah. like I did what my wife and her father wanted me to do. Like mm-hmm. and I, I you know, like and I think that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like he hasn't really lived like been an active participant in his own life ever. Yes. Um so like and I don't know what like if there's maybe some kind of like traumatic event that he is like insistent on reliving, or if it's just that mm. because like he's very much it's very much appears that he hasn't he doesn't hasn't actually felt alive until this point and so and so that yeah they've got like the wife and her father and then yeah like he is really there's some there's something about there's something about him and his son's relationship like the first thing he says is she says martin's got a new girlfriend and he says i don't he says i don't know why they don't see through him yeah like he <laughs> he clearly wants to get his leg over but it's also like it's such a disparaging thing to say about your own child it really is um, and then there's yeah like later on I think that's a really sad part of the film like that sort of that bit where Martin is like my childhood wasn't that happy like I felt there was like a lot of coldness and it all came from dad 
like oh. around the dinner table. That's right. And his dad doesn't even like blink or flinch. Like he's just completely icy. Yeah. It's a very strange dynamic. Yeah. So I guess maybe that is the point that on the surface, it looks very like, like Instagrammable. It's so picture perfect. Like it's all being staged so well. But actually, when you start to look a little deeper, you start to see that there's some bad vibes. There's a bit of dysfunction going on. People are not really speaking their minds. Um, So maybe it's not altogether crazy that he does end up feeling tempted by Anna. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to feel those urges or if you find someone attractive, but you're married. It's really quite another thing to start an affair with your son's fiance. Exactly. It's so aggressive. Like there's so much, there's something so directly aggressive to Martin, to Martin with a Y. Um, poor Martin. Um, but yeah, it does, it does like very much feel like it's not just to do with Anna. It's to do with something to do with Martin. Exactly. Exactly. That's Um, it. It's almost a bit like there's a bit at the end after what happened after Martin. I'm spoilers here after Martin dies, yeah. and she, and the wife says, "There's one person for everybody, and for me, it was Martin." <gasps> oh my god, that line is insane. That, that line, line is completely insane. Um, especially like it's like, "What about your dad, Miranda Richardson? Yeah. <laughs> like he loves you, um, but um, like maybe there's like sort of almost like that's it like the whole thing has been like this revenge for this like incestuous like mother-son relationship like or for always kind of being pushed out he's a bit like the man um in the Roger Moore film that we did in the double Mm. um this idea like this man who works for his family yes he's like an employee of like of the family you started as a doctor and now we're going to make you be a politician and now we're going to like push you into the cabinet <laughs> and it's like so yeah not like I'm like victim blaming for the poor family <laughs> like but-, but yeah but no I get you you're I think you're quite right and when she says that when she says you know Martin was the person for me mm. that's you know the jig is up we know now what is unconsciously motivating this guy yeah definitely resents the fact that his wife was always in a love affair with his son. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And that his son, like, has somehow kind of, he's, I think he's like, well, I mean, he's very envious of the son's, er- like, erotic, like, life force. Yes, he is. As well, because Martin is, like, somehow spontaneously turned out to be, also, I think it's so interesting, everyone's jobs. Yes. In the film, like, Um, because the son is saying when he's at the table, he says, you know, I had a lot of questions that were never answered. And now he's a journalist Mm -hmm. Um, and he's not only a journalist, but he's a journalist in his father's like (laughs) professional field. So he's a, and so he's, and he's just become the deputy political editor. So his job is going to be asking questions of his father. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. so he's, and so he's, I don't know. I just think that's really interesting. And then, it's very interesting. Um, politi- like Stephen, <laughs> Stephen is a politician, and that's like all about having. That's all about appearances. And yeah. Then um, his wife is like a sort of like she does like charity work, which she says is like almost like having a real job. <laughs> and she's because she like runs the family, so she does all of that like uh, that sort of like unpaid labor. 
And then Anna works with antiques. She certainly does. Because she has this like connection with the past or like a, she's sort of stuck in the past. I think that's exactly it. It's everyone's jobs is like perfect. It's yeah. some kind of like deterministic quality of the internal psychic struggles of the characters captured in their profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Like the son's journalist duties to like interrogate his own dad. Yeah. And to kind of put his own dad under a microscope and really like investigate and be critical of his dad. It makes Stephen feel, I can only speculate, but it's like the way the film is structured. I can imagine that he is forced into a position of being in some kind of rivalry with his son. I feel like Damage is the version of the Oedipus tragedy where the father survives the battle Mm. and and it's Oedipus that dies. That's so interesting. That is what it is. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. What a horrible, what a hor- even more horrible story. <laughs> really? Truly. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that, as you say, like linking Anna's job working in antiques with a fascination with the past, like she really is, like she's the classic death driver <laughs> who's like stuck in this instant replay of the past you know the urge to repeat her past as an even stronger urge actually than the desire for pleasure because she's sort of like coded as being very erotic Mm. she's so beautiful and she dresses so impeccably and because Stephen falls for her we think of her as being like this enchantress right yeah but actually she's nothing of the sort she is in she is the death drive What is it? It's revealed that her brother, who was a year older than her, committed suicide at 16. Mm -hmm. And he'd expressed incestuous desire for his sister, saying he wanted Anna all to himself. Yeah. Or like what she interpreted as incestuous desire. Right. Um, Yeah. Like she said, she actually says he wanted me not to grow up. He wanted us not to grow up. Yeah. Um, And so, and I think, and so, yeah. And she like responds to that by Mm -hmm. like going off and fucking someone else, which is exactly what I would do if my like a family member expressed a sexual desire, go off and have sex with someone else immediately. But yeah, then as you say, she's stuck repeating that dynamic Dynamic. over and over again. Hence why, of course, in this like new relationship with Martin, of course, there's, you know, the intrigue of, sleeping with his dad because that continues the the pattern from her own past and that's what she finds familiar and reassuring oddly Mm. comforting like it is very discombobulating because you think there's so many sex scenes of them together like we need to talk about these sex scenes yes what do you think of the sex scenes well I found them very confusing because when I first watched this movie I I wasn't reading that deeply into it I hadn't figured out like the theoretical stuff yet. So the sex scenes like at first glance seemed very risque, mm. pretty, pretty hot, like very animalistic and like savage, kind of like that. Yeah. But then when I started to think more deeply about what these people are really doing, I started to think that they were just, they looked more like automated. Mm. It was more of um, a sad ritual of like desperate people like it 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 seemed more like self-harm than having sex yeah I know what you mean 
Yeah. There is something like very uncomfortable about their sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, especially for her. Yeah. Like they look very painful for her in a lot of time, like in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. Yeah, there's something there is something really sad about their sex scenes. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's like spiritual growth or or whatever, but I have noticed that I've kind of graduated from finding certain scenes titillating in the past where people looked miserable. Yeah. <laughs> to now, like that stuff doesn't do it for me anymore. I need to see people smiling and and laughing, like looking like they're having a really good time. Yeah, that's why Nine Songs was such a pleasant watch. Yes. Like, those sex scenes are really lovely. Yeah, yeah. Really, really nice. And yeah, there's something really dark about these sex scenes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Her body is, like, always, like, contorted in some, like, uncomfortable position. Yes. And sometimes she looks lifeless. Like, sometimes she just droops. It's true. And there's, like, not really any effort made to, like, pleasure each other. No. Like, really? You know, it's all kind of... And there's, like, a one blowjob scene, like, really briefly. But it's mm-hmm. really sad because she's just agreed to marry his son. So, yeah, all very strange. I mean, the only time they actually looked like they were actually having a pleasant time was was right before they got caught out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's almost like superstitious. You know, as long as we're having a terrible time, we'll get away with it. Minimizing pleasure. Yeah, to, exactly. Like as a sort of exchange for also minimizing pain. And also, but there are no accidents, are there? You know, oh. they leave the key in the lock. They're hurtling towards like this. Yeah. They, they, you know, like the terrible, like when you engage in something like this, that the terrible ending is part of the experience. And it is like something that you are like you're heading towards whether you admit it or not yeah on some level you're inviting it you are inviting it like otherwise why would you do it like you know the whole point is getting caught I think when you do something like this and I yeah this is the first time I've watched realizing how much like Anna it is Anna that embodies Thanatos and how much it is kind of her story and how much she is stuck like I didn't really you know I think like 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 you I sort of thought she was kind of like an erotic free spirit beforehand and it's and sort of I'd focused in on how can this guy like destroy his life like this but Mm. when yeah when you rewatch it it's very much her like basically manipulating everyone around her so that she doesn't have to move on Mm. um and like that's really yeah so she's a really interesting character she is, because if she moves on, she's being disloyal to her dead brother. Yeah. And so he she has like to. looks like Martin. He looks like Martin. Oh my God. I mean, that, yeah, that was striking as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's a very perverse way of keeping that traumatic bond alive um, by vowing to have a perfectly unpleasant life. I mean, even just that Paris encounter to me is so is so perfect for Thanatos. Like, imagine going to get a hotel room across the road. Yeah, I know. And I thought that was a really interesting <gasps> scene because he like has his breakfast opposite the window. Yeah, and he sort of smiles to himself, like when they when he first sees them and they and they kind of close the curtains. Mm-hmm. And then, like five seconds later, he's like on the bed, like contorted in agony. Yeah, about it. So, like, what's that little smile about? 
you know in a fetal position Sarah in a fetal position exactly exactly like I think he's got a lot of admiration for his son you know like sort of there's like small moments like that which makes the film all the more tragic but there's small moments where like he really you can see like admiration there and I think that's one of those moments that little smile in the hotel room yeah Um, definitely and then that really sad moment where he goes to see his son and tell him tells him that he's like you know sort of wishing him well in his marriage and he's and the son kind of says he is like it's just kind of too busy to really take any notice of him and he's Mm -hmm. just like you know I really touched that's really sweet and then he just like gets on with his work because he doesn't need he doesn't need anything from him no exactly but yeah like just the the way that is all structured the topography of it where he's situated the way that he calls their hotel room and arranges to meet outside that very kind of pathetic sexual encounter yeah he says something like i can't see past you and she says i don't think you've seen much at all yeah and she's right because because it's like what you said about him being like just a hired help in his family. Yeah, in his whole his whole life, he's his been, whole life. Yeah, kind of like he's like, really tasted nothing. Yeah, but at and the same time, he's like enabled all of those around him to like ex- to enjoy life. Yeah, like, I don't want to get to yes. like men's rightsy, but like <laughs> it's his work that has given like you know his son like whatever education opportunities. Whatever opportunities he's had to become like political editor at like 25 mm-hmm. or whatever um i think that guy's really hot as well the son is it rupert graves yeah yeah he's hot yeah. um so yeah like there's there is this kind of idea of like yeah that his uh, yeah i i would i would feel angry as well if like you know yeah. i've done that i've done like all of that in my life and my like family couldn't even really take any notice of me justice for Stephen. justice for Stephen. he does have justice he lives in a lovely little french town with his cheese that's right his block of cheese i would like that you know like i feel and he says you know what he says actually mm. at the end of the film he says i wondered until i found a life that was mine that's right and so that, in a way, is actually quite a nice ending for Stephen because he obviously didn't feel like his life was his beforehand. Oh, he finds some liberation. Yeah, he does. Even though it's kind of like a not really a liberation because he's got that huge no. fuck-off photo like, yeah. blown up on his wall. And he's sort of thinking about when he last saw her at the airport and she's in a new relationship with a kid. Yeah. Like, that's got to hurt. Yeah. Totally, totally. <laughs> and then, like you know, you think about what f- like future weird family dynamics will now result oh in the new God. generation. Because you know she won't have resolved her issues. Hell no, absolutely not. It is interesting what you say about her like pretending to be erotic because in mm. the book, um, there's a thing about her always wearing white, mm-hmm. like, and he always says like it makes her look bigger than she is yes and so yeah like the film is very much about like these kind of appearances that people is these things that people pretend that they are i love mm. the mother character the french mother as well who is like oh, yes. cut from the same cloth as martin because she just like comes to the table and just like says really uncomfortable things to everyone <laughs> like and it's really and it's just like i'm absolutely why not like why shouldn't she talk about like her poor dead son <laughs> and like, yeah you know 
She's kind of fabulous. She's uh, it's just such a great cast. Everyone yeah. in this film is so good. Everyone is amazing. Yeah. I mean I mean also the kind of line that we all associate with this movie as well, sort of an iconic line in the film and the book. Um what is it damaged people are dangerous. They know they can survive. Yeah, good line. Great line. We need that on a t-shirt. Definitely. <laughs> It'd be in very elegant script. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Edwardian. That in itself could be a tagline for the death drive. Yeah, it's true. No, because yeah. it it within it is contained the spirit of scars and and trauma and things that we've had to like overcome and recover from. But we do that as a force to like propel us forward into survival. The whole thing about the life force is that it's not just in the vacuum; it's in response to something that wants to annihilate it that's so interesting no it's also kind of they know they can survive that one thing Mm -hmm. like i don't it's sort of it's unclear whether they know that they can survive like something else so they just keep on repeating that one thing wow so like she's like i know i can survive this so i'll keep doing it this is my skill set this is my skill set (laughs) this is my skill set like of like cheating on my brother oh my god (laughs) That's so clever. Yeah. I love what you said. That is so true. Hence why they keep like repeating. And of course you get really good at the thing that you practice the most. Yeah, exactly. She's a master of this situation. And that's why her mother warns Stephen instead of her. Yeah. Because she knows that like, that, you know, she's kind of an addict and she can't stop herself. She's not going to stop. Yeah. Wow. God, she's such a like scary character, really. I know. She is like, scary. Miranda Richardson's some, right. Yeah. Yes. Like, justice for Miranda Richardson as well. No, definitely justice for Miranda Richardson. Yeah. I mean, didn't she get um, a massive award for that scene? Maybe. That scene is so good. Like, it's so good. It's so brilliant. Like, they're I both think really she good won an, it, you know, I think she won an Oscar. I for that did. for this movie. Let me just check. I need to I need to know now. It was a pretty well received film. Yes, it was. Yes, okay. So she actually got an Academy Award nomination for damage. Okay, well I'm not surprised because she's brilliant. But she, she really won the BAFTA for Best Actress in a supporting role. Okay. For this amazing. for this movie. So she did get something really good. It's such a great film. Like it's obviously I mean you can mm. sort of I don't know, just the fact that the conversation around it that we just had was so, like, well-structured, it just shows, like, the the perfection of this film. Yeah. It's such a well-designed, brilliant film. And I haven't, I don't know, like, I feel like I really like Louis Mal, but I don't yeah. know. Is he, is he dead? Is he still alive? Okay, so Louis Mal, um, he is sadly deceased, mm. but can you guess his star sign? <laughs> Um, um, tell, is he a fire, an earth, a water, or an air? Water. Is he a Scorpio? Yes. Yay! I know. I'm so happy that we get to claim Louis Mal. Of course he's a Scorpio. I mean, damage is so Scorpio. It really is. And like, he, did he do Pretty Baby? Yes. But there's a, there's one that I'm associating with him that I've had for a while and I still haven't watched it. I feel like I should watch it with you. Okay. Um, <laughs> is it him? Hang on. 
<laughs> it's a movie called La Belle Noiseuse, but I don't think it's Louis Mal. Oh, I think that might be um, yeah. Jacques Duel. No, maybe not. Maybe Jacques Crivet. Or no, I no, not Jacques Crivet. It's um, no, it's Jacques Crivet. It's Jacques Crivet. Okay, there you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we move on to Shame? Let's move on to Shame. Okay, so Shame, two thousand and eleven, Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the first Steve McQueen film. So I actually know I've seen. I saw the ones at the film festival last year. The ones that were like episodes. That's right. Um, yeah, but I haven't watched this or 12 years slave or hunger because they all just seem like such bummers but this i I actually really enjoyed so now i can watch others yeah Um, so brandon sullivan is an executive living in new york city secretly he conceals a sex addiction masturbating multiple times a day watching porn at work and hiring sex workers when his Mm -hmm. sister comes to stay his carefully controlled facade begins to crack yeah so it's another sibling film Another sibling film. Yeah, you're right. Another sibling film, another film about someone who kind of lives a half-life or, like, yeah. uh, has a facade. Mm-hmm. They're actually very well-paired, these films. But I think so, too. Yeah. Michael Fassbender, I mean, he is really, really good. He's a great actor. He's really good. Really good. Yeah. This movie got an NC-17 rating in the States. Does that mean that it's like X-rated kind of? Or not basically, X-rated, yeah. It's like pornographic. Just, yeah, it's basically like, it's kind of a kiss of death for a film because it just means that it's like going to be more restricted than our movies. Ah, and okay. it just, yeah, it's sort of one below X, I guess, between X and R. It sort of impeded the box office. Uh, right. response to it even though it actually did very well at the box office I the budget was only doing so well yeah yeah for like a, a small budget film it was only six and a half million to produce it made 20 million so that's great that's a tidy little profit um i'm sure it's made a bomb since then as well because you don't ever count like how much it makes on streaming and dvds and all of that kind of stuff exactly and this seems like one of those films that everyone had to see like i feel like it was in the cultural conversation for a long time maybe it ended up being very beneficial that rating because it kind of like became a conversation topic you know um a cultural like touchstone as if you will i think so i think we really do films a disservice by focusing so much on their release yes that's true like you know i i often don't even really know you know a film can be so it's so different when it's like you know five years old 10 years old 20 years old Mm -hmm. it's like you don't really know what a film is when it first comes out yeah that's really just like it's (laughs) pre-life exactly and especially now when like everything has to have an angle around Mm -hmm. it and everyone is like in a race to like talk about what a film means now and to write like you know the cut piece about it i hate that magazine um and so yeah like it's really i don't know i anyway that was just a rant but yeah no you're quite right no that's so true and 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 also steve mcqueen like he's such an interesting guy like he's He's an artist. Mm. And this is the second time he worked with Michael Fassbender as well. Same. I would like to see them work together again. Me too. Definitely. A prequel about these characters. Yeah. Yes. I would love to see a prequel because I do like, I, you know, I understand the choice of it being a mystery, but I know because, you know, it's a very Hollywood thing to give a character's backstory and Stephen Green's not like a Hollywood director. Not at all. I really desperately wanted to know like what happened to these two. I'm dying to know. 
Because there's like so much kind of, yeah, they sort of have like two halves of the same disease. Yeah, they do. Or like a dis- the same disease that manifests very differently. I'm not totally sure, but like it's really interesting that they kind maybe, of maybe maybe like gendered same. differently. Yeah, it is very gendered the way that it's done. No, like he's sort of avoids intimacy, and yeah. she is like can't get enough of it. She's almost exactly. a bit borderline. Well, that's exactly what I had in mind. Like, I, I was thinking we can bring this movie back if we ever do um, mental illness in cinema again, totally. and specifically for Borderline. She was the perfect depictor of just exactly that, you know, the the need for affection and worrying about being abandoned, identity stuff, boundary issues. Mm-hmm. She did a really good job. She does. And it's sort of like there's this kind of anxiety that like I feel like this is anxiety throughout the film that they're like their different like mental illnesses are gonna like combine in this really horrible way like there's almost mm-hmm. there's that bit where she like gets in bed with him yeah. and like it's and he's just and he like she, like yells at her to get out and it's just like thank god because I thought they were gonna fuck <laughs> like yeah. you know, so I don't know like it's it's a it's a disaster isn't it like his sex addiction and her like need for like constant close closeness is like an accident yeah. waiting to happen yeah I mean I saw this movie um when it first was shown at the London Film Festival and again this is I guess chronicling what I think is a spiritual growth because when I first watched it I came out and I had seen it with some like BFI colleagues and they were all like really bummed out by the movie. They were like, that was so depressing and like horrible and what the fuck. And, and I was like, what are you guys talking about? He was living such a great life. I I was like, he lives by himself, you know, he's independent and he, he has sex on tap. Like, He's living his best life. To be honest, I thought that threesome scene was really hot. Like, I know. I thought it, it really, was. I thought it was good. Like everyone seems to it much. It's different from damage. Ever, actually, everyone seems to be having quite a good time. In that scene. <laughs> like I know that the sex work is just acting, but like I don't know, it looks more. It looked a little bit nicer. It but, did. Yeah, I saw someone online say like, you know, I'd like sobbed through that threesome because it was so bleak and upsetting, and I was like, what? <laughs> I know. I didn't think it looked bleak at all. Also, the way that it was lit, like the, all the warm colors, and it was people that knew what they were doing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was really. I thought, yeah, it was a really well done scene, and like you know, the, with the sister's voicemail played over the top of it, kind of oh like elevated God. it from being pornographic, yeah. obviously, but it was still really sexy. But I did think there was like an element of, are we kind of living? in this like fantasy of his a little bit in the way that women were so irresistibly drawn to him yeah like um because just like every every woman he met like seemed to want to fuck him and like was that like something to do with like living in his head a little bit because I didn't Mm. really understand why because he was quite a creepy guy like he was he was very creepy that scene where he's on the train with that woman with the wedding ring and she kind of like runs away from him (laughs) Like, yeah, maybe like plot twist, he's actually an incel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting sort of bit. And I really fell in love with the colleague that he goes for a, no. for a date with. She's oh so God. beautiful and like, so I, I was really like, I don't know, I just, I felt 
really drawn to her. Yeah. So beautiful and lovely. So charismatic. She's and... really charismatic. I thought yeah, that I'd really seen her before, quality. but I went and looked on her IMDb and I couldn't figure out, like I hadn't seen anything she was in. So she just has this kind of timeless, like recognizable yeah. look. Yeah. I really liked her too. And it, what's interesting is that when he first starts noticing her at the office, um, do you remember like how that's all shown? It's even while he's looking at her in a, let, let's say, quite innocent location, <laughs> just mm-hmm. at the office, he's imagining her like naked or it's, the way that it's filmed, it, it looks very eroticized. Yeah. So yeah. even in that situation, he's still got like, a compulsive sexual framing to everything. But what's ironic is that he can have like casual sex with strangers and perform to completion. But when he tries to have sex with her and they've gone on like a traditional date, he can't actually, he's sort of impotent, isn't he? Yeah. He's like disgusted by intimacy. Yes. Yes. Um, So he is kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum to the sister. Yes. Who like wants intimacy as fast as possible. Yeah. And wants to like keep it going and will like kind of exchange sex for intimacy. Mm-hmm. Whereas he like, yeah, he wants sex with like completely devoid of intimacy. Yeah. It's yeah, it's really sad. It's really sad. And when he said like I've tried a relationship for four months and she's like, What? Like you didn't even really try. I was like, that's really impressive. For someone like him. <laughs> I was like, how on earth did he manage four months? Yeah, I didn't think he'd even last like like a day because no. he doesn't, like how would that even work? Yeah, he didn't you know? even, maybe he had like a sexless relationship. Yeah. Like with yeah. someone with like a you know, low libido who didn't demand too much of him. Like, yeah, maybe that's uh, the only way he can have a relationship. That's the only circumstance where that would actually be like logistically possible. Because that that whole chat they have over over their date is very interesting to me. Because she's sort of trying to make the case for, I guess, romantic love. Mm. And the way that he, like, responds, he's so, like, robotic. Yeah. He's really well cast for that. Because he can, he plays a good sort of, almost like an android figure. (laughs) He does. There is something, there's always been something a bit unnerving about him. And I don't know if it's because of the roles that he takes. Yeah. Um, he's sort of AI he is he is sort of AI there's something and it's always really hard to believe that he's not his character I know like I feel like there's a general supposition that Michael Fassbender is a sex addict maybe he is but like I don't know I think he just really disappears into roles really well and meshed with them yeah yeah he's got that coldness Um, what did you think of the scene where, okay, so just to set it up, obviously, like the sister has been calling him like mm. nonstop and leaves these long messages on his answering machine. I actually, I've been thinking a lot about like, I, because you know, that like, I sort of wrote my dissertation on like female voices or like and female yes. silence. And so I often like come back to this idea a lot, but I've been thinking about like the like stalkerish female voice or like the female voice that like interferes with like Mm -hmm. a life and that's so and I loved that the way that her like voice just pervaded his apartment and he couldn't get on with what he was doing because she just like didn't hang up and carried on talking on this answer machine like I don't know I really enjoyed that I thought that was a really interesting thing about her like she's obviously 
I mean, yeah, she's sorry, but you carry on because you were you were sort of setting up this. this well, situation. I mean, it, it it ties in perfectly to what you said. Like she's a sort of specter that haunts him. Yeah. You know, this voice from the past, from a shared childhood. That he's trying to like desperately repress. He doesn't want to remember this shit. You know, that's the whole thing about his sex addiction is that it's a distraction. It's a way for him to dissociate from constantly having to remember something painful that happened. Something that's never named. And her habit of leaving these long messages is really a specter that haunts him. And the way that she just shows up unannounced at his apartment she's such a chaotic force in his tidy little life yeah and he's so atomized and isolated and she just like is this like tornado that comes in and she's so messy and like her clothes are so different and she's naked yeah all the time <laughs> yes exactly and she she walks in on him masturbating in the bathroom yeah and she just laughs she now has basically like crashed at his place a few nights She's really unpredictable. She slept she's with his like, boss. She slept with his boss, his married boss. Mm -hmm. And then it all sort of culminates on this one conversation they have like on his sofa where she's basically pleading with him that he must take care of her or something. Mm. And what did you think of his response? Because like he's basically saying like, I'm not responsible for you. You're my sister. Like I'm not your dad. I don't need to take care of you. He doesn't feel compelled to like be a comforting force in her life or protective or anything like that. He's quite happy just to live separately. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, like I, per I, could, I was kind of like on his side. <laughs> That's interesting because I didn't like. I don't know if I like heard different lines mm. or something like. But for me, it's not that she's asking him to look after her. Yeah. It's that she's like refusing. She's like putting herself in that position only because if they're not like, well, I guess it's interesting because she's kind mm. of like displaying her own like illness a little bit because she's like, if we are not physically in this apartment together, yeah. you won't ever call me again, yeah. which yeah. is actually kind of like, it is sort of what happens like the second she like comes to New York to that gig that her boyfriend breaks up with her and That's she's right. like begging and pleading. But I also think like, this need to not talk about whatever it is that is painful for him is greater than his desire to like have a relationship with his sister. Yeah. And if she hadn't, if she didn't just want to talk about it, then it would probably all be okay. Or like maybe it's not even that she wants to talk, but she just reminds him of it constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I don't think it's the mess and I don't think it's the chaos. It's that it's like he, he does this thing where he sort of, sort of shuts down. Like, and I can't remember exactly what he says, but there's just like, there is a bit where like, she's just begging him to talk about it. And he yeah. like gets up and leaves the conversation. Yeah. Like, and then that's, and then what happens next is that he goes out all night and she tries to kill herself. That's right. Because like, she's on her own with this stuff. Like he's just left her on her. She's like opened this gate and he's left her all with her. And I think that is kind of why she's as vulnerable yeah. as she is because he's sort of pushed it all onto her mm. like he's I think he's project he projects everything onto her I think yeah. like he's made himself this like blank canvas <laughs> and then he like pushes you know like he even like kind of pushes his sexuality onto her 
like and she's sort of like no absolutely like, I've seen what you fucking do on your computer like you know she's really she like won't let him do that but like it's all and you know it's it's this like this very weird conversation where like you know what he's been up to you know that he's like his work computer's full of porn and that like yeah. someone's gonna get into trouble for that and that like you know that like you get the sense at the beginning of his like the film that his life is about to fall apart and he mm. can't stop messing it up. But suddenly he's in this conversation where she's completely in the wrong and she's yeah. like unstable and she's like chaotic and she is a bad person. I think because like, I feel like I've, I've, mm. you know, been in this situation sometimes like she, there's this very strange thing where he just completely projects everything onto her and then walks away. Yeah. And like, no wonder she tries to kill herself because yeah. it's so because suddenly she's not just carrying all of her stuff. She's like suddenly being blamed for all of his stuff too. Yeah. Like, and she must feel like unbearable. That is so true. That is so true because actually we know that his tidy little space is not so tidy. Like he's got some um, extreme stuff in there. Like he does. at any moment, like some, there will be a pop-up on his computer screen of someone doing a, like a live sex show and they, they know him, you know, he's been going to that person, like probably compulsively. Yeah. And it's just so surreal to just be like, so how's it going? And then all of a sudden, like <laughs> the person's computer, like is, displaying this like extreme level of of eroticism that is so clashing with the moment but that is his reality it's like this weird sex addiction fun house where there's all like every sex toy imaginable there's like loads of porn magazines and, yeah like, like when he gets everything out to throw it all away yeah. like in response that's in response to being caught masturbating I think or yeah. something yeah. It's like, I think it's in yeah it's like the response to that like sexual embarrassment yeah like he gets every and it's just like where the fuck are you hiding all of this stuff in your empty apartment right like it's where, so stripped down. It, where has this all come from so like yeah it's i've so yeah with that scene oh, yeah. i thought it was so brilliant because of that because he just is so cold right. and like he because he obviously really loves his sister and he obviously yeah. is very moved by her when he cries when she sings Mm. and um she thinks like the most unnecessarily sad version of new york new york yeah <laughs> no need for it to be so in such a minor key like at all um and yeah like he obviously really likes her and like she makes him laugh and she's like yeah. really bright and she's quite like so i think she's much she's actually kind of dealing with everything a lot better than his obviously mm, and comparatively. maybe what he does to her is a little bit of jealousy or envy yeah, because she well. can feel yeah because she can feel and she's like capable of talking about it and she's also like capable of turning what like her pain into like creativity yes. because she's a singer yeah. and she like puts a lot of herself into her work whereas he has this like horrible job like what is he doing like building an app or something i'm not really totally sure what he's doing he's a transponster he's a transponster <laughs> Remember from Friends yes. when it, nobody nobody knew what Chandler's job was. <laughs> exactly, that's what he is like, and he hangs around with that despicable guy who's oh, like, horrible. He's also sort of compulsive, like his yes, he is the way that he like flirts with women, like he has no shame and no like no desire to be kind of like dignified at all. He's just like desperate. He's sort of desperate. Yeah. 
like I don't know it's really disgusting and then like all of this like he just and he takes all of this aggression that he feels to this guy and just takes it out on his sister mm-hmm. and it's so horrible I think yeah I think you're definitely correct that's a much more accurate reading than how I was perceiving it because I think it's just to get a little like, confessional here it's probably because I am naturally like a very avoidant character mm. So the way that he was behaving, like I, it was so familiar to me because that is how I would be as well. Like just self-isolate, do my own thing, live in solitude, maybe be compulsive about things secretly. You know, yeah. If someone wants to get close to me, I might freak out because I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too close. I, I, I like being aloof. Yeah, I think we just like are uh, we're very much seeing this film through our own like personal lenses. Yeah. As I've definitely been on like the Kerry Mulligan side of that conversation mm-hmm. where like I feel like I'm expressing something totally reasonable and the other person is yeah. like, you're a monster for <laughs> saying that. Like you should never say that. And I've been like, I'm pretty sure that I'm not. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> you're literally yeah. a little bit wrong here. <laughs> like, yeah. It's so yeah. true. There is a lot of projecting going on here. Yeah. Definitely. Like, I don't know, it's such a shame. And I feel like it is a hopeful mm. ending because, you know, like he does, I don't know, that scene where he, where the, someone jumps in front of the train. Yes. And he suddenly like gets this instinct and runs home. Yeah. Like it's sort of, I don't know, it's really sad, but it also kind of means like he hasn't totally closed himself off to like some form of communication, even if their communication is like psychic at this mm. point. Like, you know, it's sort of nice. He feels somehow connected to her pain, even like telepathically or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. There's still some hope where he he can he can have empathy for her. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I really like that. Because also I remember at the time there was some chatter around this movie and people were getting offended because they said that um <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's uh, some truth to this, but so when he goes on his bender Mm. that night, he really goes like extreme. He's out of control. He needs to have sex like multiple times, I guess through desperation because he can't get the thing that he wants in that specific moment. He ends up at a gay club. Yeah. He goes like almost like a sauna, a gay sauna. Right, right, right. That's it. It's a gay sauna. Yeah. And um, he receives fellatio from a guy. And so I remember there was chatter around that scene because he looks so ashamed. It's it's sort of like coded as this is not something he would normally do. He's just doing it because it's available. Yeah. And he's so desperate. Like he, he just needs some release, you know? And I remember people saying that it was homophobic. <laughs> That's so interesting because I wrestled with that in my mind. Like, yeah, or like just I was like, is that homophobic? And then I was like, no, like, no, because he's so. not gay. No, he's like, not gay. So it's, it's very simple facts. Like, it's just he's going against like his sexuality because of his yeah. <laughs> like, That's all I it is. I don't think it's homophobic. I think it's like, I mean, to be completely honest, like I thought, the way people talk about this film, I thought it's going to be like way more depraved. Like I thought he was going to be like masturbating on women on the tube. Like when someone is like, <laughs> I've heard someone be like that scene with the woman on the tube, and I was like, oh, oh my god, he masturbates oh. on a woman on the tube. He doesn't. He just like stares at someone yeah. and then stands behind them. And I was and like, so I was like, he's going to be fucking animals. He's going to be like, it, like 
and it's just like he doesn't like he just and that scene again when he like puts his hand up that woman's knickers in the yeah. bar yeah and then like that again it's like it's just like is he imagining that that woman's really turned on by that it's like he's also like sexually assaulting someone but no one gets offended by that <laughs> like I know, you know exactly that is the only thing about the film that I am like a little bit like we're supposed to believe that all these women are like yes please like put your hand up my knickers in front of my boyfriend like I you're know. so sexy Michael Fassbender it, yeah it could all just be literally his own made-up scenarios yeah. in his own head that would completely fit the structure of this movie um when he meets a woman at, the, at a bar and then like they're just having sex like outside yeah it's just like it is a bit weird I don't know yeah it's very strange that every all the like scenarios he kind of ends up in like ones with the sex workers make more sense yeah those seem more um like plausible yeah they're much more plausible the ones with this the random women it's just like I mean Mm. it's also like kind of speaks to that kind of unconscious like chemistry of damaged people yeah like people that have the same kind of like a complementary kind of damage to your damage to go back to damage um because (sighs) like sometimes you do meet someone that you are like inexplicably drawn to drawn to and there's Mm. really no reason like that or even there's sometimes nothing to recommend them (laughs) like (laughs) but somehow you can't stop thinking about them and you're like you feel in love with them that's like some very mysterious unconscious process by which you've like identified someone that will make you feel a certain way and it's not a good way but like mm-hmm. it's a familiar and needed way for you to feel so maybe that's what happens like maybe it's really just about so like he just keeps meeting like unhappy people yeah and so maybe all of those women are unhappy and that's why like the the same thing doesn't happen with the woman at work because she's like you know again she's like just kind of doesn't seem to be like well she's obviously got like equal amounts of like eros and thanatos because she has this like failed marriage behind her. yeah but 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 you know she's not ashamed no she's not ashamed she's like right? she's like the first thing she says about herself pretty much. exactly yeah she's so embodied yeah like whereas he's he is full of shame and I guess you're right. The people that he attracts or he ends up hooking up with are equally ashamed. I think so. And that's why the sister is so, like, I think that's why he's so angry with the sister because, like, she's, like, by definition very unashamed, you know, like, Mm -hmm. the way that she, you know. Shameless. She's very shameless. And she says, Mm. like, and she seems to, she's kind of like the Martin of the film. She, like, kind of seems to have the answers. Yeah. She says to him, we're not bad people. We just come from a bad place. That's right. Um, and I like and so yeah I think it's I think she's a great character she's a really good character wow you've actually made me appreciate her way more mm. yeah. because like my avoidance streak is like <laughs> I imagined like myself I had identified a lot with Michael Fassbender's character and I imagined having that discussion with a sister and I'd be like I wouldn't even let it get to that. I'd have changed the locks like I would be so fucking cold <laughs> yeah I think like but that's my predisposition to just avoid like you know I'm quite distant but you've actually given me reason to reassess her it's not that she's annoying it's not that she's annoying I think she's a very triggering character because of the shamelessness yes because like most of us by this like a certain point in life have learned to like avoid shame 
to yeah. a certain like like I'm sure we've all like maybe not all of us but a lot of us have had like a crying on the phone begging someone to take you back moment like she mm. has but like it mm. seems like she consistently puts herself through those moments and like yeah. I you know I personally got to a point where I was like I will never let someone humiliate me like that ever again like mm. even if it means that I feel slightly less joy <laughs> like mm. much mm. rather avoid that pain whereas she doesn't she's like is never she doesn't seem to mind putting herself through humiliating experiences in order yeah, that's true. to like experience like close like what she wants intimacy intimacy yeah and it's obviously like it's a disorder because like she's getting more humiliation than intimacy yeah and yeah. she's not looking for intimacy in the right places but yeah. it's still like I think it's a better place to to start from than a place it's more where hopeful. you're totally yeah it's much more hopeful than to start from a place where you're just totally isolated and you that's won't so true because of their history, whatever it may be, it's manifesting pathologically. But at least in her case, as you say, she's coming from somehow more optimistic place. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas he's really nihilistic. He really is. Like, he's a true nihilist, like in the kind of negative sense of nihilism, because there's also a positive side. But he really, he's really given up the ghost. Like to me, he really is a great death drive figure because he's almost like a, he's almost like a reanimated corpse. Yeah, like, he's completely he's stuck. like a sex zombie. He is. He is. I wonder, <laughs> it made me think about sex workers and how many people they must meet like that. Yeah. So the, dissociated. So really dissociated and stuck. I mean, to me, it feels so weird. Like, it's such a mindfuck to consider having sex but being dissociated. Yeah. Because you're, the whole point of sex is that you're supposed to be embodied. Exactly. Like, and yet, it's crazy to think that for some people, pursuing sex is a way to distract themselves from their body and from themselves. It's a total dissociation. It's like taking ketamine or something. Yeah. It was a great film. It yeah, great it's film. a great film. Yeah, for sure. I once saw Michael Fassbender outside um, a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess he was like going in there to masturbate. Yeah, he was just lining up for the glory hole, of yeah. course. You know, like it was a perfect spot to, to you know, to see him, of course. And we did make eye contact. Oh, and did he but, stare at um, you for like an uncomfortable period of time? It wasn't uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I maybe missed my chance. I had like a split second maybe to lean into it, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> no, but he really is a good actor. Do you know he's half German, half Irish? Well, I guess the name is... Yes. <laughs> like, I guess if I thought about it, I would guess that he is. And yeah, that does actually make sense. And um, Steve McQueen is a Libra. Oh, interesting yeah yeah i would have i would have said i would have probably guessed libra because you know they're such good astutes you know yeah it's true it's true they are very pretty libras very and michael fassbender is an aries yeah <laughs> obviously <laughs> what about carrie mulligan oh good question let me check ah oh my god i would not have guessed that she's a gemini Ooh, oh that's interesting that's kind of interesting, actually. Yeah. No, maybe it makes sense. I think it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, they're she, sort of free-spirited, aren't they? Free-spirited, like kind of multifaceted. Yeah. Um, I love the yeah. people's like star signs. It's so good. I know. <laughs> oh, this has been a really good discussion. It's been lovely. What are we talking about next week? Okay, so episode three, we're going to look at two Paul Verhoeven movies. Woo! Excess. That's the theme of the episode. And we're going to be looking at Basic Instinct and Showgirls. I'm so excited to watch these again. Basic Instinct is like a real, like, it's a, um, Catherine Trammell is like a yes. real uh, role model of mine. Mm. and I also and also my boyfriend hasn't seen Showgirls and so I'm going to watch it around Alex's house and get him to watch it and I'm so excited I'm so excited because we've watched a lot of Verhoeven together yeah but he hasn't he doesn't like we went to see Benedetta together we've Mm -hmm. watched Robocop together Mm. is that Verhoeven Mm -hmm. um we've watched Total Recall amazing so but he hasn't seen Showgirls so like what is you know like you gotta write this wrong i know i'm so excited it's gonna be amazing i'm just so excited oh my god i think he's really gonna appreciate it i think so too like he i don't think he can not and i also really want to get him to watch that you don't know me documentary have you seen it about showgirls yes i have i started the london film festival same it's like it was one of my favorite things that year i think it's a great documentary i really enjoyed it (laughs) well thanks for listening guys and you know if you're hanging out in the sun listening maybe just scoot on over to itunes and give us a rating and a review we would really appreciate it yeah and tell us where you listen to us now i need to know i want to know that too (laughs) enjoy the sunshine bye bye